So Rick Westhead is our senior correspondent in the studio with us. Rick has done some groundbreaking work the last few years for us on the plight of ex-players, the issues in terms of their health, the effects of concussions, the issue of CTE, and brain injury to players and the long-term impact of it. And tomorrow on SportsCenter, uh, a piece that I've seen the trailer for, I've not seen the story yet, Rick, Finding Murph, about Joe Murphy. Right, so this is a story that uh, takes us, I guess we've been working on this for about three, four months now. And I first got a call uh, from Rick Ralph in, you know, out west saying, hey, have you heard about what's going on with Joe Murphy? And I said, no. Um, Didn't know a ton about Joe Murphy's career, to be honest. And he mentioned that uh, Trevor Kidd and a few other former NHL players had told him that their friends and colleagues in Kenora, Ontario, uh, had said that Joe Murphy was homeless in Kenora. Now, Joe Joe Murphy, by the way, former first overall pick in the National Hockey League draft, Um, a a very good NHL player, uh, very productive. Um, Played nearly 800 games yeah. in the NHL. Won a Stanley yeah. Cup with the Edmonton Oilers. Part of the kid line. Part of the kid line in Edmonton with uh, Martin Jelena and Adam Graves. So this is not a. This is this was a, a regular NHL player who was you could say a very well known player for a long time. Sure, and fell kind of fell off the radar radar after he left the NHL in 2001, and even that was under kind of bizarre circumstances. Joe was with Washington at the time, and the team was on a road trip to New York. Uh, him and a few other players went out to a nightclub after a game. He left the nightclub on his own, according to newspaper accounts of the time. Right. And he was attacked by someone on the street. And with th- this person took a, a bottle, a broken bottle, and cut Joe across the face. And, you know, a very, very bad injury. And Joe wound up in hospital. And had, that was the end of his NHL career. Washington right. released him shortly thereafter. So, for, I want there's a lot of things to talk about here. But first of all, Tell us about, and you went through this with Matt Johnson, looking for Matt Johnson of the LA Kings. Finding a former player is not as easy as it sounds. So you hear this, that, that Joe Murphy might be homeless in Kenora, Ontario. How do you go about finding him? How do you go about contacting him? And, and how do you go about telling his story? Well, the first step is trying to determine whether it's true or not. So we, we reached out to the Ontario Provincial Police and asked them if they'd had any encounters with him. And, you know, this is, it's an interesting kind of illustration about how different the U.S. and the Canadian systems are. Our right to privacy in Canada is much different than in the United States. For right. instance, if you're arrested in Canada, there's no way a reporter can get a copy of the police report no. or of your mugshot. Where in the U.S., that's, you can get that the day it happens. So the OPP uh, would not talk to us about that. They said, you know, if he's here, we can't confirm it. You know, he's a private individual. Mm-hmm. He has a right to his privacy. So we had to make a call about how to move forward. We decided that it was worth taking a gamble on. And so basically we took a crew and we flew to Winnipeg. We met up with Trevor Kidd and we drove with him to Kenora. And beautiful town for those who haven't yeah. been there. And, and basically drove through the city and figured, well, we'll take a couple of days at this, and if we find him, that's great. We'll see if he'll talk to us. And if we don't find him, you know, it was a gamble worth taking. And our first drive through the town, I remember, uh, you know, we'd kind of almost reached the end of Kenora. If, I think if you drive west to east through the town, sort of the last hub of buildings, there's a, uh, a Walmart and a Canadian Tire and a Tim Hortons, and literally saw him out front, uh, outside of a store 
on that uh, you know on that strip of, of road and so Trevor Kidd got out first and went to talk to Joe and we just hung back and kind of kept our distance and gave him his privacy and after five minutes or so Trevor asked Joe if he'd agree to talk to us you know important to point out that Trevor was not mic'd up for any of this mm-hmm. we completely respected Joe's privacy and only after he said yes I'm willing to talk to you did we approach him and so at that point we spent the better part of I guess three days with Joe just you know in different parts of town um, is he home over meals yeah he's homeless he has been living in the bush on on the floor of a forest he's been living in a homeless shelter in Kenora and he's been spending some nights in the camper of a local Kenora resident who said you can stay in this camper in exchange for cutting some firewood for me so his situation has been as about as desperate as you could be how did he get there uh, good question the, as, and it's really tough to put together a timeline on this um, you should just point out as well after we talked to Joe and he said yes he wanted to, to, to tell his story and, and be public about this we also contacted his sister mm-hmm. Kathy who lives in the Muskoka area um, she after we said get, take some time and think about whether you want to participate in this story and she did and then she introduced us to Joe's ex-wife and Joe's daughter and all of them said it's important to have this story told. Right. If any one of those people, Joe, obviously, uh, first and foremost, had said, no, we don't, we don't want to share this story, we would have just moved on to, to something else and still tried to see if we could make an offer of help or make a difference to him, but we definitely wouldn't have done his story, but he wanted it done. Um, back to your question about kind of the chronology of events. Um, Joe was actually living in South America in the last couple of years. He was in Peru for a time. He was in Costa Rica for a time. He was deported last year from Costa Rica. And after he arrived back in Toronto, uh, made his way to the Belleville and Kingston area. Uh, in November, he was charged with mischief after uh, trashing a hotel room there. I spoke to the Crown Attorney who prosecuted the case, and he told me that in 99% of these cases, usually it's a local who'd be charged with something like that and right. they get a conditional discharge, meaning you do you pay a small fine, you're on probation, and if you don't do anything against the law again for a year, your record's wiped clean. Joe pleaded guilty, which was an incredible rarity. So he wound up um, being sent to Kenora to serve uh, a week in jail. And so that's how he wound up in the Kenora region, as best as I can tell. But how does a player who leaves the game in 2001 wind up on that journey to homelessness what 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 is the i wish i had a clear-cut what answer he for that what, what, he thinks that it's a combination of things um you know it's it's amazing the number of people who will say well you made 15 to 20 million dollars in your career this is all on you you should have managed your money better you should have made better choices and you know what to his credit joe says that exact thing he says i should have made better choices he's open about his drug use after he left the game. But he also talks about the types of prescription medications that he received while he was in the NHL, given by teams, given by team trainers, so that he wouldn't miss time. And he wonders himself whether the drugs that he took to remain an active NHL player when he left the game may have exacerbated his situation. He talks about gambling. He talked to us about, I don't think we mentioned this in the piece actually, but he talked about how he spent he blew nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars in one weekend in Las Vegas, so you know clearly it's someone who's struggled 
with mental health issues through the years. It's someone who talks about the long-term consequences of repeated head trauma mm -hmm. that he suffered while playing in the NHL and about, in his opinion, the lack of care that he received, their lack of proper care that he received for those. Again, we have this expectation that players know their body better than anybody or this understanding and that well, you ask a player, hey, are you okay to go back in? That the player is actually be able to make a, a, a fair judgment and make that call. So it's a, it's a tough one because... You and I have talked about this before, and, and you have done, as I said, really groundbreaking work on, on talking about an issue that, for some reason, people don't want to discuss. Well, it, the reason they don't want to discuss it is because no one wants to be blacklisted by the NHL. No one wants to right. ask those kinds of questions that are going to lead to the NHL saying, it's time to shut this down. It's, this is too much. In Joe Murphy's case, there was a lot of discussion during his career that he may have had mental health issues. And at that time, there was not Bell Let's Talk. There was not team psychologists. There was not the idea that it's okay to talk about mental health. And we've seen in the NBA of late, Paul Pierce, Kevin Love, have, and Chris Bosh have talked about anxiety and mental health issues they've faced. And, and our Michael Landsberg has been very open about it. And it, it's a very different time now, but it wasn't then. And, and so... How difficult is it to get players? I'm impressed that Joe Murphy you know, accepts responsibility. How difficult, when you deal with these players, is it to get them to talk about these things? Well, it's not easy. Uh, it was a different time. And again, we've got to be careful not to see things that happened with Joe Murphy in the 90s and 2000s through the lens of 2018. Right. It, it was a different time. However, the 90s and the early 2000s, it's not like penicillin had just been invented. We're not talking about the 19. 20s or 30s, right? I would think that we were far enough along with our medical expertise and, and you know, awareness in that industry to have known that somebody who's unconscious on the ice probably shouldn't be going back into games for a period of time. I mean, in boxing in New York State in the 1950s, and this again, this was after a rash of deaths right. in that sport, which the NHL has not seen. But in boxing, if you were knocked unconscious during a fight in the 50s in New York, you couldn't go back into the ring even to train. Right. So, you know, the NHL might not have been headquartered in New York in the 50s, but it had at least one team there with team trainers and doctors. Why wouldn't they be learning from the lessons that boxing had learned? So, in a larger sense, you've talked to us about the fact that the, the, the judge in Minnesota dismissed the, the class action uh, case for the players against the NHL. So now they would have to pursue it individually. The number of players who volunteered to be tested this summer, very low. Was it 10 players? Yeah, it was about that. They had a real tough time. This was, uh, again, being tested. Dr. DJ Cook's a neurologist in Kingston. Um, you know, yeah. he uh, is one of the leaders in his field. Gord Downey was one of his yeah. patients. And he talked, there were several hundred that went to see him a year ago when there was funding for this. His funding since dried up, and he had uh, fewer than 10 NHL players. He says he has several hundred uh, Canadian Hockey League and NHL players on a waiting list. So w when that flow of money does start to pick up again, presumably more players are going to want to go in. And the reason they want to go to him is because of confidentiality. If you have been struggling, you're, let's say you're a free agent the next season, you have been struggling with headaches or you know what you think might be a brain problem, perhaps the last thing you want to do is alert your team or other teams to... To, to what's going on in your head. You might want to try to preserve your ability to get a larger contract later. Mark Savard went through hell. I mean, Mark, you know, when, when he retired and a lot of other guys have had the same thing, 
Family members have reached out to you. Former players have reached out to you. How widespread is this? Impossible to say. We know Joe's not the only one. I mean, we've heard over the last months about Matt Johnson, like you mentioned, Stephen Pete, Murphy. Um, if players aren't homeless, we know that some are definitely living below the poverty line, just from the anecdotal stories that I hear. I couldn't say how many of them. Um, but again, this is a league that it, it's never been better, right? It's making more than $4 billion a year in revenue. And does it have an obligation to former players? Maybe not. Maybe it does not have a financial or a legal obligation to them. But let me turn it back to you, Gord. Does the NHL have a moral obligation? Well, that's, that's the question. And, and I think that, you know, talking to lawyers, as I have, about the NFL case, which was settled, and the NHL case, which, you know, is sort of in limbo now, lawyers will make the case on behalf of the, of the NHL. If, if, if Rick West had as a former player, I would say to you, Rick, how many concussions did you have before you got to the NHL? I'd say I don't know. And that's, that's a great defense. Did you have any in minor hockey, junior hockey, the American League? Um, did you fully report your symptoms? We have your medical records here. Did you report to us that you had symptoms? Um, did you, you know, did you, when you were coming back to play, did you follow the protocols properly? Are you alleging that we withheld information from you because CTE wasn't discovered until, written about until 2008, you retired in 2005? Did you know hockey was dangerous? Were you aware that there's a risk to playing hockey? All these questions, to your point, legally the NHL might not have an obligation. And I would put the Players Association in this as well. But morally, I think they do have an obligation. And one thing that former players talk about is it's not the NHL ex-players association. The interest that the NHLPA seems to have in its members diminishes greatly once they leave the league. That's the impression a lot of former players have. Is that fair? I think it's completely fair, but you asked me a question earlier about you know why this doesn't get more attention, and you're obviously as tied in as anybody is with active and retired players. Why do you think it doesn't get more attention? I, I would have thought this would be the single biggest story in hockey right now about this realization that there is a chance that players who play this game could end up with a real debilitating brain injury later, mm-hmm. and I just don't see people who are in the game every day um, engaged on it. I don't. I mean, we talked to Paul Tracy yesterday, and there was that there was a crash at Indy, and, and Paul's had you know three good friends die in Indy car crashes, and we asked him the question about you know how do you get back in the car when you see these things, and he said you just put it out of your mind. You just it's it's almost like you say it can't happen to me, and and I I know players well who have had a series of concussions. And you try to have the conversation with them. Are you worried about your long-term health? Are you worried about what it's going to look like when you're 50, 55, 60? Are you worried about that? And they don't want to talk about it. And, and I, I think it's, it's understandable in a sense that it's, it's fear. It's, it's, you know, if, if you've got a history of cancer in your family, you don't want to talk about cancer. It's, it's understandable. It's, it's, it's in your mind for sure. I just don't know how you can convince players coming in to be more mindful of their health. They don't pay attention. I mean, we went through this for years with not paying attention to what the, the union was doing, and, and, and they, they probably still don't as much as they used to, or they, they still probably pay as little attention as they used to. They want to play hockey. You're making the argument that the players get the leadership they deserve? I think in a lot of cases they do. I think they don't ask hard questions. And I think when they do ask hard questions, quite often they get shut down. They get shouted down behind closed doors. And, and so I guess what I'm saying to you is, do the players 
themselves have an obligation to say, this is our health. We need to do something. About where, that. where are the players going to get the counsel and the, and the advice from that? Are they going to get it from NHL player agents? But, but ultimately, Rick, isn't it your responsibility to take care of your health? I mean, if, I, if, I go to, if I've got real abdominal pain and I go to my doctor for my medical and don't tell him about the abdominal pain and then my appendix ruptures and I get really sick, that's not my doctor's fault. No, you're right. But if you're working in a factory and your employer understands that there's something, a workplace hazard there and doesn't say anything about it and doesn't tell you about it and doesn't do anything to so learn what is about that? it. So what is that? What, what are you saying that the NHL knew that it wasn't telling the players? I'm, I'm not saying that the NHL has known anything, but there's four research centers across North America that do cutting-edge research right. on brain injuries. Gord, you tell me how many of those the NHL is contributing money to. I can, I can guess zero. Zero. <laughs> um, the NHL for 20 years has had a concussion working group trying to research and trying to come up with protocols. In that time, how many neurologists, how many doctors have gone to medical school have been on that working group? I'm going to guess zero. Zero. Yeah, so... So the question yeah. isn't, what, is, what have they held, the, the held back? Is it, to me, the question is, could they be doing better? Could they be doing more? And, yeah. and so my, my thing is, you know, the National Football League is having this ongoing conversation this week, especially about the new rules about head hits and, and, and helmet hits. The fact of the matter is, it's not going to matter what lawyers do. It's not going to matter what the league does. There's going to come a time when parents might not let the kid, not enough parents will let their kids play the sport. It, it won't be a lawsuit that brings, it, it'll be the fact that, a parent's going to say, you know what, Johnny, you can't play hockey, and, or more to the point, football. You can't play football because I don't think it's safe for you. Well, I think that's already happening. The Los Angeles Times yesterday did a story on this where they yeah. talked about the real decline in youth participation in football in California. So that's already happening in that sport. Right. I don't think we've seen that yet in hockey. We haven't. So you, you, the work goes on, and, and you keep finding, you know, you keep hearing these stories. How depressing is it? Uh, well, it's not an uplifting story right now, but maybe it will be. You know, maybe it will be. Matt Johnson, we reported on right. in late December. Well, from what I understand, uh, Matt is, no, is, is back now working with the Los Angeles Kings, helping to run some hockey schools. I think it's probably a little bit too early to say that he's made a turnaround. I mean, right. it's only been seven months, but there's something positive there. I think there's also something to be said for giving someone a voice. And how many of these former players who've had struggles and hurdles and they feel, maybe they feel abandoned, maybe they feel afraid to speak out publicly, right. um, you know, isn't it our role as journalists, if we're journalists, to give a voice to people like that? Absolutely. And I, and I think it's a very, I think what you've done is a very brave thing. And it's, it's unfortunate that, and I, I don't think it's any responsibility of yours, you've put it out there. It, it's unfortunate that more people don't want to talk about it. And I, I guess that's the way things are in life, but it just, it just seems that telling the truth about what happened. And, hey, listen, in a, in a much larger sense, and this is a sports show, but in a much larger sense, what happened in Pennsylvania with those priests and those children happened for a long time because no one would talk about it. Yeah, and again, no bravery on my part, period. This is the bravery of people like Joe, people like... You know, Mike Peluso, right. people like Dan Lacatur, uh, people like Dan Carcillo. As much as he might rub people the wrong way in hockey right now, that, that former player has become a real advocate for former NHL players uh, getting better treatment than they get right now. And you can make the argument that the NHL, you know, there are good people there. And there are. There are good people throughout hockey. There's great people at 
NHL teams that I, that I know, that I consider friends, and at the league office who I consider friends. That's not the question. This is a sport that's full of good people. The question is, can they be doing more for players like this? And, you know, not just me, but people like Dan Carcillo, former players across North America, probably throughout the world, would argue that, yeah, they can be doing better. This is great stuff. Uh, Finding Murph tomorrow night on Sports Center. Look forward to seeing that and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Gord. That's Rick Westhead, senior correspondent for TSN. Uh, Finding Murph, the story of Joe Murphy, which is um, sad and sort of catches your breath for a moment when you see someone who realizes dream and then the dream becomes a nightmare. And it's, uh, it's a tough thing to watch.